This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's so good to be with you today. As per usual, we're bringing in really what are business superstars into studio and talk to them about their journeys. How did they do what they do? And what are we trying to do with on the Future CEO Show? We're trying to help you expedite the growth of either your business or your career. You may have that your eye on that corner office. We want to help you do that. Or maybe you, you're ready to scale that business. We want to help you do that as well. That's what we do here on Future CEOs. We bring the best and brightest into studio. We ask them to share some of their highs, some of their lows. We learn from them in you're one of the people that we absolutely know we're going to be able to learn from. Welcome to the Future CEOs show and Cliff Central. Hi, thanks very much, Gareth. I appreciate being here today and thanks for inviting me. Ian, it's no mistake that you're here because you are a, what I think I'm going to have to call a retail icon, magnate, serial retailer. Serial, these, these serial is probably better than magnet and icon and all that stuff. Well, serial, it just means that I've done it a few times. Yeah. You've done it a few times. You've probably yes. learned a number of lessons along the way. Correct. I want us to explore that, but before we get into all of that detail, yeah. as we do here on Future C, as we're always interested to see how guests introduce themselves. Ian, welcome. Tell everyone who you are and give us a little bit of background. Tell us why you're here. Right. So my name is Ian Fur. I am, I suppose I can call myself a serial entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur since I was uh, 22 years old. And I've been doing that now for 43 odd years. So I've had a bit of experience in mm. that. And, and, and my life has been littered with uh, a number of startup companies over the years. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I've learned from all of them. Mm. And towards the end of your life, as you start growing, you start to put all the lessons together that, that you've, that you've learned over the years from the various businesses. And that when I started Sorbet, it was trying to put all of those into one business, one final shot at an entrepreneurial venture, basically. And what a, what a shot it's been. Congratulations on the success Thank that you. Sorbet has been. I, I do want to talk to you about that. Just by the way, it's an absolute honor having you here. And in honor of you being here, downstairs in our, in the other studio, we have a jazz band playing. <laughs> so if anyone's hearing background noise, it's, it's an honor, <laughs> honor so of you. So if I break into song, you won't mind. No, not at all. <laughs> It will be a unique one-time only experience on Future CEOs, I think. Ian, let me read something that was written about you by a journalist, which I, I believe is probably the, the right way to start the conversation. Here it is. When Ian Fur made the decision to launch the Sorbet beauty chain in 2014, uh, or beg your pardon, 2004, almost everyone he spoke to thought he was either pulling their leg or experiencing a break with reality. <laughs> Yeah. That's an interesting thing to have said about someone. They're breaking with reality. Yes, I think what I was trying to do at the time seemed a little odd to most people because I had left my previous company and I was looking for something to do. And when I started to tell people that the idea would be to start a, a beauty salon chain mm. that would hopefully one day be a, a national household name, I think there was, you know, a few people that looked at me weirdly, mm. especially my wife at the time and my family who could not understand what I was trying to do. I knew nothing about the beauty industry whatsoever. And so, yeah, I think those type of things, perhaps they, they've inspired me over the years mm. is, is when people say it can't be done. That really says, says well, actually, that, that's right. It says mm. to me, says to me, okay, well, let's go and try at least, you know, mm. give it your best shot. Uh, that's what I did. It's interesting. So there's a couple of different points here that let's talk about. First, yeah. often someone that's associated with a beauty salon is is not a an older gentleman. It's <laughs> rather mildly, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's it's rather a, a young lady who has some kind of technical expertise in in, in yeah. that world in the beauty industry. Where did this come from? Okay, so I had sold my previous company, which is called Supermart to Edcon in mm. 2003, and I was looking for something to do, and I happened to be lying on a massage table, believe it or not. Okay. That was a proper professional massage, in case you have any other ideas. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and the beauty therapist who was doing the massage said to me, why don't you look at the beauty industry? She had been involved in the industry for quite a while, and she was trying to explain to me that there was a gap in the market, 
I asked her if there was a market in the gap, mm. and she said, well, you know, why don't you try and find out? I said, well, I, I couldn't see myself in the beauty industry, quite frankly. Um, um, I just couldn't see my face on a billboard advertising beauty uh, because we try and you know, attract women into the stores rather than chase them away. Mm. And and I said to her, you know, I, I know nothing about beauty. I don't know about products. I don't use any products. I use soap once or twice a week. Um, and, and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and she said, never mind all that. You understand a little bit about business. Why don't you find out if there's an opportunity in, in this, in this market? And I did. I went and had a look. And the one thing that I discovered was that there wasn't a single branded chain of beauty salons in mm. South Africa. And, and that was really what, what, what inspired me at the time. I thought, okay, this is something we have to do. I couldn't understand why there wasn't one. Mm. And I knew that somewhere along the journey, I was going to find out probably the hard way. But I thought, well, this is an exciting thing. And one of the things about being an entrepreneur, particularly for me, is I always enjoyed going into a new industry each time I started. A new okay. Business. Really? Okay. Yeah. Cause I felt that um, if you grow up in a particular industry and you're trying to start something new, you kind of get contaminated by the rights and wrongs of, mm. of that industry, what works, what doesn't. And I prefer to always come in with uh, fresh eyes and say, okay, well, I'm not going to listen to what people tell me about this industry. I'm going to do it and find out for myself. And I think that's always helped me quite a lot because because it gave me an advantage because I knew nothing, quite frankly. So. Yeah, you so, were able to ask correct. very different ignorance. questions. Uh, that, that's correct. Yeah. Ignorance in this case was an advantage for me. What's so interesting is often what we experience is we, we learn that there are multiple types of entrepreneurs that exist. And so some are really good at starting businesses. Some mm. are really good at growing businesses and others are really good when it comes to massive scale. Mm. You seem to then in your journey have started multiple businesses, taken them all through various phases of, yeah. of business, how is it that you have been able to, to do that? How did you know where your skills lay? Okay, that's an interesting question, and I've asked myself that a few times mm. as well. Mm. I, uh, I think that I've recognized the things that I'm good at or, or what I enjoy, really, and that's starting something. Trying to challenge the status quo of an industry, trying to do something that never been done before. Those are the things that, that you know, that excite me, mm. I, I believe. And then once a business is up and running and it's getting to scale, then I'm not that interested, quite frankly, in the detail anymore sure. and the operational side of the business. And then I get a bit itchy and start looking for something new. So. Mm. And try and sell the business wherever possible or sometimes even close it down and just move on. I mean, that's just the thing that, uh, I believe it's always been for me is, is the um, opportunity to build a brand and to start something new and different that's never been done before. The brand, I, I heard clearly yeah. that the brand in Sorbet is probably mm. the linchpin or the, the yeah. gold in the middle. I, I want to get back into that, but let's talk a little bit about you and your journey first. Right. So what you discovered is that you like to, let's call it attack the status quo. Correct. Take it, take it head on. Yes. What is the difference between taking on the status quo, interrogating it, and then this idea of innovation why are you successful but other people who brand themselves as innovators aren't as successful hmm. i think that's a tough one i'm not quite sure if i'm an innovator i think um, i've just had certain ideas about business that i've tried to implement over the years mm. so it's a combination really of the brand of building a brand and more importantly building a corporate culture which is the thing that i'm most passionate about and then trying to put some ideas together sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't mm. but to try and be as different as possible that's that's always the key for me so when i went into the beauty industry for example i looked at what was available i mean each thing that i tried to do including the choice of the name and everything else mm. was to be different from the rest of what was out there at the time yeah so that's really, I think, the thing for me was differentiation as much as possible. How did you discover this this bug, this thing inside of you? Let's call it entrepreneurship. Back then it mm. probably wasn't called that. It wasn't necessarily fashionable. How did you discover it? What was your first entrepreneurial thing that happened? I was quite fortunate in that my father was one of the founding directors of Russell Furnishes. Mm the furniture business, and so we used to sit around. I'm the youngest of five children. My older brother was also an influence. He was um, you know, 11 years older than me. He was in business before me. So 
So we used to sit around the dinner table and there were lots of things that they spoke about. It mm. was mainly business. And my father was a marketing man and he used to teach us some sort of, you know, marketing principles. So I learned around the dinner table, I think was the first thing. And I, I think I was fortunate to be able to have that as an opportunity because not everybody gets to do that. Mm, so listening very carefully, particularly to someone who has a lot of wisdom and experience, mm. you know, so. And then, of course, I went to school, and then some things happened at school that changed my view on life, um, particularly in so far as as sort of discrimination and issues that were relating to apartheid at the mm, time. I, mm. I was pretty naive. I was I was taken to a Jewish school because I was Jewish, and mm. I, my parents put me there. I'm still not quite sure why, but anyway, they did. And the thing about going to a Jewish school was that there are only Jews there, so mm. I never got an opportunity to meet anyone else or to interact with people of other religions and cultures and races and stuff like that, which in hindsight was actually, I think, a disadvantage mm. for me. But uh, one of the things that comes out of that type of thing is when you're sort of ring-fenced and you're insular in your upbringing is that you start to believe, we started to believe that, and we were told that the Jews were the, the chosen people of God. Mm. And, uh, you know, being young and naive, you just accept that and you carry on living your life. And then I went into the army at the end of all that and, and there I met a different group of people, which was Afrikaans-speaking Christian males. Mm. And I thought that I had been chosen by God, of course, mm. and, and I can tell you they didn't think so at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> they they thought that I was something completely different, and they told me exactly what they thought about me mm. you know, and Jewish people. And, and then they said, well, they were, in fact, the chosen people of mm. God. And, and, mm. and so that was a hell of an experience for me as a bit of a dilemma as a 17-year-old boy. From kind of hero to zero, I think you can say one day I thought I had been chosen, I was special, I was better than everyone else, and the next day I was at the bottom of the heap. How did you cope with it? Well, I struggled, I think, a bit, and and then I think eventually, and I'm not quite sure exactly when it happened, but I, I came to the realization that there is no chosen people of mm. God. There is no one group that is superior or inferior to another, and that we're all just different, mm. and the sooner we learn to accept and tolerate and and understand our differences, the better off our country would be. And that set a bit of a platform for me because then I got involved in a number of other things where the racial issues and apartheid and all of those things became a part of my life. And I think it also laid a good platform for me in business because I I think I had some sort of an understanding of how to manage people particularly of diverse background. So and and that's an important thing for me. And yeah. that's such a such a big thing. You you spoke about something that's near and dear to your heart, which yes. is building a certain kind of culture within a business. Correct. And so I hear that this is this is where this is coming from. This is an integral part of it. Yeah. So just just in a in a nutshell or two, a, a lesson or two that all of our future CEOs on this point can take away from from that experience for you in the army and what perhaps some of the principles that you incorporate now as you build businesses, what, what are they around this idea of diversity and cultural integration uh, and similar? Well, I think I think if you look at my first business, which was called Kmart, it was a retail chain. Just to give you a little bit of background there, my brother, my older brother had been to America and he came back and he liked the idea of large retail chains. Mm, he said, We've got which they're very, very good out there. Yeah, yeah, and particularly the one called Kmart in the States. Mm-hmm. And so he said, we should open one. And I was 22. That was our first business. Oh, wow. And I, I decided, okay, well, all right, let's give it a bash. Being very naive and not understanding issues of trademarks and things, I just called it Kmart as mm. well. You know, mm. didn't think about registering or finding out. Okay, so I mean, here I am. I'm thinking, oh, oh how did you, as a 22 year old, get a license from it? But actually, what you're saying, no, no we didn't. Total, ask. We, no, we just total ripoff. Uh, total, total ripoff. <laughs> and, and and to make things worse, we actually used their logo as well. Oh wow! Yeah, so, so that was really dumb. Um, That's naivety, right? <laughs> total, total, total naivety. No idea. I'd never been in business before, but then we opened this thing and, and it was aimed at the black market per se. And of course, all the staff were black and the customers were all black. And I was the only white person essentially in the whole business at, mm. the, at that time. So I had to learn pretty fast if I was going to be able to work together with these people and, mm. and understand the different cultures and backgrounds and things like that. So, so I was thrown a bit in the deep end. And then a few sort of uh, examples of things happened to me. One of them, which was which was pretty interesting, actually, 
was at the time there were some consumer boycotts going on in mm. South Africa of white-owned businesses. And um, one of my guys who was like my star supervisor, the guy that I had really identified as future potential. Yeah, this is this is the rising t- star. This is the rising star. Um, he got caught handing out these pamphlets on the corner of, oh, of, wow. of, of, our, of our store there, you know, handing out pamphlets and promoting a consumer boycott of white owned stores. So, mm. the, so obviously I, I was, I was completely wild. I mean, mm. I went, I th- called him in. I said, I mean, how can you do this to us? And I spoke to him like a father, you know, you can't do this. Mm. And he said, I'm sorry, Ian, but you need to understand. That this work, I enjoy my work and I love coming to Kmart. But at the end of the day, in South Africa, life is pretty tough. So when I leave here, I get harassed by the police. I, and there's all kinds of things that go wrong. I never mm. know from one day to the next if I'm going to be arrested for some or other apartheid law. And so for me, the struggle is really more important than my work. Mm. And that was one hell of an eye-opener for me. So instead of firing him, I asked him to be my mentor. And to take me into the townships and teach me about what was really going Very on nice. in South Africa. So that was an important lesson for me. And then we worked closely together until very sadly he was murdered about oh, three or yes, four that years is sad. later. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that was quite sad. Mm. The Kmart story, where did it end? So, <laughs> so at what point did Kmart's head office say, Hi, guys. Yes. We don't have record of the license. That's right. Twelve years later. Oh, 12 years. Yes, okay. Yeah. yeah. 1988. We opened up in 1976, which was right in the middle of the Soweto uprisings, in fact. Mm. And 1988, they came with an army of lawyers, mm. and we tried to defend it, but we were up against it there, and, and they just smashed us, mm. and mm. we had to change our name to Supermart. Okay. Yeah, and that was the business that was eventually bought by Edcon okay. in 2003. You've got this retail history. I think let's start talking a little bit about your business ethos and approach. Uh, and yeah. approach. So you've spoken about company culture. Yes. The the Sorbet story has a brand around it. Let's start talking a little bit about it. Okay, well, the brand has got two elements. One is the look and feel of the brand and how you present it out there and your mm. marketing and your strategy. And the other is how the service works, you know, in terms of the, of, of the people. Mm. So I've always tried to try and combine those if, if, if I can. Um, but the people element has always been the big one for me. So we've got help and, and my daughter, fortunately, she's our group marketing manager and she's done some amazing things for the brand. Mm. But, but as far as I was concerned, my key thing was building the culture. And in order to do that, the one lesson that I learned quite early on in my journey, is that the purpose of work is not to make money. And, mm. and that came as quite a shock to me at the time and, and certainly quite a shock to the people that I was trying to manage in the business at the time. Can you tell us the, that experience? How did that come about? Okay, so there was a guy with a name. Well, there is a guy, rather. Mm. He's still alive. His name is Jerry Skatemer. And he was a an economic journalist. And he wrote a book or two. And I met him. And he told me that the purpose of work is not to make money, it's to serve people. And did you reject that initially? Well, well, I was fascinated by it. You know, it was something completely new and different because everything up until then had always been about making money. And you know, I thought um, success was about money mm. and power and influence mm. and fast cars and fast women. And what do you mean? Are you saying it isn't? <laughs> All of that. Now, now I have a very different view about that, of course, because mm. now I believe that the, the success, you know, is best measured by, by the contribution you make to other people's lives. So, so people serving people is really the philosophy of our business. So if you have somebody that comes to work and they're only interested in themselves and in the money, we have a special name for them. We call them eye specialists. Eye specialists. Eye specialists. Okay. Yeah, they specialize in themselves. And they need to understand that, you know, if they continue to be eye specialists in our environment, they won't be welcome and we'll eventually ask them to leave. Are, are eye specialists easy to spot? Very, very much so because mm. they focus on themselves. Everything's about me. What's in it for me? So we try and work and I do all the induction training myself. So every single person that ever comes through our our business or joins our community, we call it a community, mm. not a company, mm. they have to to come through my induction training, which is a one day program 
where I try and help everybody to understand the philosophy of the business. And the key to that philosophy is that the purpose of work is to serve people. And the higher purpose is to touch lives. Mm. That's what we're out there. And we try and explain to all of our, our citizens, we call our staff our citizens, and whether they are beauty therapists or nail technicians or hairstylists or barbers, it makes no difference that their role and their purpose is to touch people's lives in a positive way. Yeah, what's so interesting about what you're sharing right now Mm. and the conversation that I had probably about an hour ago with someone who understood that you were coming to studio Mm. was they really wanted insight on sales. So, And and my view of top CEOs is that they're potentially some of the best salespeople in the world, some of the good ones anyway. But what you're describing is, I think, sales 101, but also 201, 301, because how many people out there are just pushing a product rather than serving other people, trying to solve their problems? So serving people is the key. So if you're thinking about yourself and how much money you're going to make, then you're working on a job. But if you're serving people and you are trying to make a difference in their lives and touch their lives in a positive way... um. You know, it's no longer a job, it's a privilege, quite frankly, Mm. and you're on a mission. So we get all of our people to try and understand that not everybody gets it up front, but over time they start to understand that if they really serve well, that the money will come. Exactly. Money money is a byproduct of it. That's correct. And a reward is is better way to say it, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you serve well, money is the reward, and then they start to understand. And then what, what you find is that people start to change their attitude towards their work. And that's been... I think perhaps our single biggest uh, differentiator over the years is the attitude of our people. Because mm. we don't offer anything dramatically different to what our competition does. You know, we, we do treatments like everyone else. We sell products. But I think at the end of the day, it's the attitude of our people that really makes mm. a difference. Mm. And uh, there are a number of things that have happened in examples over the years where I've been quite astounded by the relationships that have developed between our guests and our citizens and the stories that we get back from them. And I've just written a book recently called uh, The Soul of Sorbet, which is going to okay, be lovely. launched um, in July. And okay, excellent. A lot of those stories are in there. And perhaps I can share one or two with you. Yeah, please. Um, so, for example, we received an email from a woman who had the the traumatic experience of having to have a mastectomy, which which is the um, the loss of both breasts mm. because of cancer, mm. and um, and during her recovery she struggled to um, dry her hair or to even comb her hair because she oh, couldn't wow, lift yeah. her arm because of the muscles and the pain, so she came to our dry bar to have us do her hair for her. Mm. And then she sent us an email about a year, no, sorry, not a year, about a month later, saying to us that the staff there at that store actually saved her life and got her through this most traumatic experience. And she was coming there every two or three days. And it wasn't just the hair that they were doing, but it was the support and the encouragement Mm. and just helping her to get through this very traumatic experience. And those kind of stories have been coming through a lot lately and mm. people starting to understand that this is not just a business. It's a place where you go and you can develop relationships and the attitude of the people makes all the difference. Well, I don't know if our listeners picked up on what you said, but you, you were speaking about a relationship between your citizens, which yes. you emphasized earlier. But yeah. what you didn't mention is that uh, your customers are not called your customers. They're we called call your guests. guests. Yes, yeah, and so that, guests. that changes the dynamic entirely yeah. on how someone might treat Correct. another person coming through their doors. Correct. So what I'm hearing is a, a confirmation of what I suspected, which was mm. brand and then customer centricity Correct. and really wrapped or, or held together by the glue, which is a really strong corporate culture, uh, a culture that by and large is, is directly driven by yourself who does all the induction. That I, I think it shows you, it shows all of us. Uh, it helps me to understand how important that is. And potentially the, the, the success that you've experienced as a result. Uh, there's another success factor that I'd like us to, to look at, which is you didn't start a service chain 
although you, you call them guests and you're there yes. to serve, there was a there was a tweak in the way that you approached the business, and this, this is to your strength, which is I think retail, and and so you approached Sorbet with a retail business model rather than a service delivery model, which is often Correct. the massages and yeah, and, right. and the and the care. But yeah. there was there was something that that drove that even through the the cyclical periods that yes. the beauty industry experiences. Right. So I think that was part of our differentiation right from the beginning. And because of my retail experience, I decided to make it more of a retail environment, which offered treatments than a beauty salon that sold a few products. Mm -hmm. So I think Mm -hmm. that was part of our differentiation sort of strategy at the time. It's a fine line and there's some nuances there. What are those nuances? Well, I think on average, most beauty salons at the time would, would do about 70% 70% of the, of their turnover in treatments and mm-hmm. about 30% in retail. We try to make it more 50-50. Okay. Because we felt that the retail opportunity was quite big. The, the treatments are great, but you're a bit limited by the number of treatment rooms and the, and the number of, mm. of citizens that you have. But retail, obviously, there's no limits. Yeah. So, yeah. so we try to promote that and we got some really strong brands to help us. We sort of, Built our business quite a lot on 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 the back of two strong brands, Dermalogica and Environ mm. Skincare, and that helped us quite a lot. Okay, so part of your success was to partner with other brands. Yes, these products were sold in many other stores at the same time, but we changed it slightly in that we had a big focus on the retail side. There were big displays, and people could see that we were serious about retail. Mm, okay, I see. And. And we started to capture quite a large percentage of the market of those two brands. So there was a, a very much a partnership, Correct. but but using other people's products rather than and your skills own skills and their training and yes, all of the yes. other good things that come with it. Yeah. Mm, okay, yeah. interesting. So you're starting out on the sorbet journey. What's the first step you do to actually qualify the opportunity? Because as you rightly asked, is there a market in the gap? How did you actually qualify this? Okay, what I did was I bought up a couple of independent salons mm. at the time, back in, started in 2004 and into 2005, just so that we could learn the business and understand it a little bit. And then I think once we had a bit of a handle on it, we started to realize that the most important thing about building a brand of any kind, particularly if you're looking at a chain, is to get the consistency of service across the board. Mm. That's the biggest challenge by far. And that was the reason I believe that there are very few of these. And and quite frankly, there are very few successful beauty salon brands in the world that have more than 200 stores like mm. we have at the mm. moment. So. Yeah. I've spent a, a fair bit of time with the C, the local CEO and in the business. This is the McDonald's difference. Yeah. The fact that they can standardize the experience, standardize the product. This mm. I learned 10 years ago, sitting with their, their head of HR. They have a, a university, McDonald's University, right. which is, the, which is really the, the reason they're able to mm. do all the standardization. Sounds like you're in charge of your university. So we're copying them and we're starting the Sorbet University. Oh, are you? Yes, okay. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So there's, there's that differentiation that you, mm. that you're describing. What I'd like to do is then, then move a little bit into the journey. Because right. uh, it sounds peachy. <laughs> it sounds like it was a bed of roses and, no, no, and because, because you've got so much experience. Yeah. What did you encounter along the way that were some challenges that you had to overcome? And can you share some of those experiences? Yeah, well, the first four and a half years we call the dark days um, mm. because we just four and a half years, four and a half years, not not one year, not no, two no, years, no, four and a half years on the back of many, many other years of retail experience that you have. Correct. So this is important and, to note. And correct. And the problem, of course, was the staffing part of the business, and that was what we experienced. Was that I really struggled to get people to understand this philosophy of ours in the beginning. That the purpose of work was to serve, not to make money. Most people thought I was a bit, bit nuts, quite frankly. It's, it's a hard, pull, it's a tough pull to swallow. Yes. Um, certainly, if you're not, yeah. if you don't see the beginning from the end, perhaps. Yeah. So we were hoping to franchise quite early in mm. the life cycle, but we couldn't quite get there. We had to open eventually 22 company stores before we sold our first franchise, first franchise and that wow. took us four and a half years okay, yeah, wow. of losing money and, and having to, to put money into the business every single month without fail for four and a half years. It's difficult to justify that to partners and to potential <laughs> shareholders. That and to yourself, <laughs> you start to question <laughs> yeah. your own sanity eventually. Um, yeah. 
And so, yeah, I think it was getting quite close to, to a point where I, I wasn't quite sure that I could carry on. And then we managed to sell our first franchise. I think one of the, one of the stories that relates to selling the franchises was that there was this uh, franchise expo that, that, you know, mm. that you go to mm. and you set up your stand. And my partner, Rudy Rudolph and I, two, two old guys, he's even older than oh, me. Yeah. yeah. So we went there together to try and see if we could sell, sell a, a few franchises. A, a beauty, a beauty yeah. franchise. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and we didn't actually get even one inquiry. And they, you know, it was, it was quite sad. Mm. And, and we realized that none of the women were actually coming, coming too close to us, to our stand. And mm. I think at the end of the day, I thought they probably wondered. What these two old perverts were doing, trying mm. to to attract women and maybe sell them in Thailand or something. Oh yeah. So so we, yeah. So they kept a, a wide berth and they didn't come anywhere near us. So we had to change our, our strategy quite significantly at that time. What was the change? What was that? What was that thing? Well, that that, turned it around. Well, the first lesson was to get a female to yeah. to, to be standing there because it was a beauty industry type um, in that organization, mm. and and that and that you don't sell. Franchises from expos. I think mm. that was the big lesson. Okay. What, what we discovered is when we sold our first franchise, it was because a, a guest of ours loved the experience she was having in one mm. of the stores and she decided she wanted to own one. And subsequently to that, I think every single one of our franchisees now has been a guest. A guest first. Before they became a franchisee. And that really encouraged us because it's, it, people love the brand and they love the experience. Yeah, there's, there's no kind of ratification yes. that, uh, like someone yeah. wanting to open a business exactly like your business because of their experience. Yeah, and they become passionate and we look for the passion. You know, really, I think that's even more important than the skills. Mm. In some cases, if you really love the brand, then you're going to make it work. At that particular point, did you then say, well, we need to start – uh, marketing this opportunity internally is that is that how it came about or was it still just a very organic process we had been marketing in our bits and pieces and we'd have flyers and of course on the website we'd, we'd put our, our franchising but then but i think once the momentum started going you know we hit that sort of tipping point and then we started opening quite quite quickly mm. and then also selling off the company stores uh, mm. Two franchisees, which helped us to get back onto a more solid financial sort of footing. Mm. Mm. And then after that, well, I suppose we never looked back after that. So at that particular point, you, you, you begin to experience growth. Yes. Now this is where a lot of entrepreneurs begin to struggle because yeah. they, they're really good at starting. You have said that this is potentially where you begin to lose a little bit of interest. Talk to us a little bit about your experience of, of taking in, in your environment, this is probably, uh, the wrong word, the total mm. wrong word, but taking command of a big ship with a lot of, a lot yeah. of citizens. I think what, what helped me a lot in that process was I brought my family into the business. So okay. It, it, it's become a family business. Well, particularly now until such time as we sold it recently to Long for Life. You probably mm. know about mm. that. So it was a family business for several years and I've got three children, all of whom pitched in and, and made a big contribution. And of course, my other partners, uh, uh, Rudy and other people that, uh, Deborah Rosen and people that run the Cape, they, they, they started to contribute. And then all of a sudden it started to work like a kind of a machine, really. Mm. It, it got a life of its own. Yeah. Like a flywheel effect of sorts, right? Correct. Yeah. So once we were comfortable that the, the franchisees were on board and they believed what we believed, that the purpose of work was to serve and they believed in our higher purpose and everyone started getting into that. It started to kind of work a little bit like a well-oiled machine mm. and, and, and the store openings became quite easy actually. We, you know, for the last four or five years, we've been opening about 30 stores per annum. Wow. And, and they all seemed to go, you know, quite smoothly. With the new franchisees, obviously training became a massive part mm. of the thing mm. and the consistency of service. So we want someone to go into a store in Polokwane and experience the same kind of service and attitude mm. as, as if they went into a store in Seapoint in Cape Town. So that was the biggest challenge and still is our single biggest risk is to mm. maintain the consistency of service and the attitude of our people across the chain. 
And then it you know, started, as I say, to take a life of its own, really. We had a conversation a few years ago around family businesses and family-owned mm. businesses. And that, that's a challenge in and of itself, which is okay. interesting. I think we're going to have to have you back on and talk us through how you were able to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I want to dig into your leadership a little bit, if, if we can, at this sure. point. I'm, I'm fascinated by the different approaches of different leaders and, and how their emphasis is appropriate for different businesses at different times. Yeah. If, if I was to ask you, what are your, what are your three pillars of, of solid, good business leadership? What would they be? Okay. So I build, you know, in terms of culture always is, is the foundation of a business. Okay. Absolute foundation. Okay. Mm. So the foundation and, and what we call the soul of sorbet, and it's got four pillars as opposed to three. Mm, perfect. Uh, and and the first one is people before profits. Mm. So we always have to focus on people first because if we don't get the people element of the business right, we're never going to make any money in any case. So it doesn't really matter. I'm going to challenge you on that one yes, if I can because sure. it, because it sounds good. But yeah. but how do you practically implement that though, especially well, I, when you're under financial pressure? Well, I think we've done that because – you know, if we look back at the, at the dark days and when we were trying to climb out of a hole, we kept thinking, you know, if we try and make money and we cut our costs and we cut everything back, mm. you know, it's not going to work. Mm. So we had to just keep believing that we're going to build a brand that somebody wants to buy one day. Mm. And, 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 and in so doing, you had to have the people element of the business, right? So I always believe and I still believe, and I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy and not many companies <laughs> agree with it, but I still believe that if you really get the people element of your business right, the rest comes a lot easier. So if you focus on people before profit, it, it works. It, well, it certainly worked for me. When I look at you, and, and we're going to get into the other pillars in a moment, but what, what I see is someone that's mature enough, and we're not talking about age, but, mm-hmm. but mature enough to be able to realize that there are different stages. And at that particular point, we're going to profit, and we're going to profit in a big way as a result Correct. of a particular kind of focus, um, rather than the, the, the then instant then Short-term focused mm. sort of mm. money-making proposition. Mm. Mm. Okay, so that's pillar number one, people yes. before profit, and you mean it. I know yes. you mean it. Yes, we definitely mean it. Pillar number two? Pillar number two is community building. Okay, so we need to build a community of the people, and that's some of the things that I mentioned earlier mm. on about the diverse society. So we're working in a country like South Africa that's got a hell of a history behind it mm. and, and is hugely diverse and there's a lot of polarization even today still there and there's, you know, you, you're working with people of different race groups and cultures and religions and political views and mm. all, all of these different things. And if you don't actually work on that or if you ignore it and hope that it doesn't affect you in any way, I think that's a bit naive. So we have to spend time on it and that's one of the things that we do. So in the induction training and wherever else we can, we talk about the importance of, of understanding people that are different to you, accepting and respecting. You know, when Nelson Mandela came out of prison and he spoke about the Rainbow Nation which sadly has kind of faltered a little bit mm. over the years. But I've always believed that if we can't change the the country, because we're obviously too small to do that, we can at least make some changes within our own community. So we call it a rainbow community mm. where, where people accept and respect and tolerate their differences. And once you have a strong community, I think the performance, I mean, we have proof over the years that the stronger the relationships within a store or a community of people, the better the performance is going to be. Mm. And the focus can then be on the guests as opposed to on each other and conflict and all all of the things that that undermine community. Mm. So we work hard on that. Mm. And uh, it's it's a beautiful dovetail into your first point, your first Mm. pillar. I guess my, I can hear our listeners asking the question, yeah. but how do you still push a business forward while trying to please everyone? Because you can't please everyone. Yeah. Or, or maybe you can. Maybe you've, you've found that, yeah. the, that secret source that we need. Address that, that issue of trying to please everyone, please. Yeah. Okay. So I think trying to please everyone is quite challenging and I don't think we ever have pleased everyone. There's mm. always going to be some people that kind of fall by the wayside. But, but the point here, is that in business you've got two elements. You've got the um, the business side of it, which is the, the the brand and the sales and the services you provide, and you have to get all of that right. Obviously, that's a given. Mm. But if you have a culture, which which 
lays the foundation for great customer service or guest service, as mm. we call it. That is the key to it. So it's a combination of both. It's not one or the other. But I think the foundation needs to be in place. Otherwise, you're never really going to get the service that you want on the other side. So if people are comfortable within their environment, you know, people say to me, how do you motivate? We have about 3,000 citizens now mm. across the country. How do you motivate 3,000 people? And I say, well, quite frankly, I don't motivate anybody because I don't believe you can motivate people. They have to motivate themselves. Mm. But what we try and do as leaders is we try and inspire people to motivate themselves and, and more specifically to try and create a working environment in which people feel comfortable mm. and they feel confident and that they are prepared to follow you to places they may never have gone by themselves. So I'm hearing a few things come out here, which mm. is first, we have that foundation, that, that culture. Right. Now, what's interesting about culture is that there is an identity attached to culture as well. Right. And so while we're saying respect everyone, mm. people that come into the business must respect the culture. And really what that, what I'm hearing is that they must take the identity that is sorbet on Correct. themselves. Correct. And any of the sharp edges that they might have brought into the businesses will be absorbed by that culture and by taking on that new identity. Okay. I think I hear that. Okay. It's it's part of a, a journey of self-discovery for a lot of people because mm. they come in and, and they're being challenged on, on different things. And if you have some very inflexible paradigms about your views on life and, mm. and, 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 and on a, particularly about race and culture and religion and those type of things, then you're never going to be able to change. If you mm. are blinkered, you're going to be you know, an eye specialist, you're going to believe that yours is the, you know, is the best way and the mm-hmm. only way and the mm-hmm. right way. And, and you're not going to fit into this organization. You're going to struggle with it. So we encourage people to reflect on themselves and look at their own views and stereotypes and uh, paradigms about other people and to let go wherever mm-hmm. possible mm-hmm. to be able to change and to, and to embrace a culture like this rather than to stand up for yourself and become an individual. What the listeners can't certainly see, but what I'm seeing you do is this flowing through. And I would associate that with an Eastern <laughs> philosophy of energy flowing. And, but yes, there is, uh, there's exactly that, that everything needs to flow through. And if Correct. you, yeah. if you don't allow it to leave you, you're going to be stuck with it and then you become rigid and immovable right. and potentially unusable yeah. as a citizen yeah. in your organization, certainly. The, the other thing that I, that I really like from what you've said is people aren't always going to be happy, but if they feel safe and if they feel comfortable, they're going yes. to perform. So that would lead us on to our third pillar, which is servant leadership. Okay. Okay. So that's about serving people because the whole philosophy of the business is about serving people. We felt that our leadership also needs to be about serving people. Mm. So it's really about serving the people who are serving the people. Mm. That, that's the philosophy of servant leadership. And that's also about creating a working environment and growing people from the bottom up rather than, you know, the control mm, style command of management, yeah. command and control style of management, which holds people down where you work on fear rather than respect. How do you serve in the servant leadership style without being walked all over. Yes, okay. So it's not a soft approach. Mm. I think people just assume because you're serving that you have become subservient. Mm. That's not the case. Mm. You're serving people, in fact, just to help them to become better servers in their own right. So that means that you that you have to, you know, train and develop all the, all, all the normal things that you do, but you are helping this person to grow, not for your benefit, but for theirs. And I think that's really important. Most people think that they train people for the benefit of the company, but it's not so in my view. You're training people for their own benefit, and if they benefit the company, well, that's a reward. That, that's not the purpose. Mm. And you need to grow people and to touch the lives. So when you're talking about touching lives, it's not only about our guests, it's about our citizens as well, and making them better people and more more skilled, more experienced, more knowledgeable, so that they can go out and serve their guests even better. So it's all about service, and it's a flow of service from the leadership all the way through, whereas in most companies... The staff are, are kind of subservient to their managers and mm. they look up to them and they grovel and they bow and they because, mm. because their managers are controlling their lives and their destinies and all yeah, of that. If you do not, you yes, will. Yeah. yeah so mm. they're more concerned about keeping the managers happy than they are about keeping the customers happy. Mm. And, and we, we, we kind of turn that around. So the leaders now 
must help the citizens to be able to serve their guests to the very best of their ability. All the while not throwing the baby out with the bathwater yes. by, by not performance managing, yeah. by not doing yes. any of those things. So that, that's all part of it. So the discipline will always stay. Yes, yes. Now, this is not an ill-disciplined approach. Mm. It's just a serving approach. But all the disciplines, if, you know, if somebody steps out of line, they're going to go into a disciplinary hearing mm. the same as any other company. Mm. But uh, the style of leadership is different. It's just trying to get people to to grow and to nurture them as as they grow and to start making people believe that they don't have a ceiling above their heads. Mm, you know, lovely. we like to see our, our salon assistants who are the ones who clean and make tea in, in, in the business and watch them grow and give them opportunities to learn how to become a nail technician and to improve their lives and their, and their, their financial income, etc., etc. So the whole thing is about upliftment all the time, uplifting people. You know what's remarkable is I was with Franz van der Kolf a little while ago. He's the, the let's call him the mastermind. Yes, you'll like right. that title yeah. behind Food Lovers Market. Mm. And his background is, was in pick and pay, also retail. And he just told a story about a, I think it was essentially a shop assistant who wrote on his goals to own his own pick and pay. And Franz saw that and he, he decided to pull him up and through and, and do exactly what you're describing, mm. which is serve, empower. Yes. But by doing that, he was empowering his, his own journey as well. Yeah. Yes. And, and I love that idea. And the fact is, you sitting here across the table from me being quite successful. France sits wherever it is that we interact, successful. Mm. And what you have in common is this idea of servant leadership, which is yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Your, your final pillar. The final pillar is uh, passionate service. Okay. So we take service to a slightly different level. If somebody's not happy, we have a sign in our store that says, if you're not happy with your treatment, you don't have to pay. I've been to several hundred salons in South Africa and all over the world. I've never seen a sign like that. Mm. People just don't do that because they're afraid that you're going to be abused and everyone's going to take advantage of you and no one's ever going to pay. Yeah. But the reality is that, you know, is that it's very, very small, a very, very small percentage of, of people ever abuse that thing. We do on average about 300,000 treatments a month at wow. the moment in, 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 in Sorbet. And, um, we have maybe 50 complaints, 50. Yeah, you know, that's remarkable. You know, so, so it's, 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 it's very small in relation to, to the number of treatments we do. And even with products, if somebody brings a product back and it's uh, half used, mm. most people will say, look, you know, forget about it. Why didn't you bring it back straight away? Sure. Where's your slip? Where's your, you know, where's your life? And how do you mm. want me to refund you something that you've been using for six months yeah, or whatever? Yeah, exactly. But we'll take it back. And, and, and we'll say to the person, no problem, you know. And if you think about it, people say, well, that's crazy. Why would you do that? And it's quite simple, really. At the end of the day, if you're going to refund somebody 500 rand and they're going to become a loyal guest of yours for the next five years, we, exactly. we, we work out they're going to bring about 30,000 rand in over yep. the next five years. So yep. it's a very simple equation and it's a, it's a very cheap investment. I learned this lesson from the the CEO, the founder of a fairly large forex business, yeah. which is an interesting business yeah. to learn from, an interesting leader to learn from, where he, he just said that what you really just need to do is look at the life mm. expectancy mm. of your, so to speak, of yes. your of your guest or your client yeah, or right. your customer, and they're going to bring in multiples if you just treat them right and do what's right. Thank you for that particular lesson. We are running out of time, it seems. Okay, no we just problem. got a signal. Okay. Let's do some quick-fire questions right, and, then, sure. and then round this, okay. this all off. What is the absolute worst advice in your entrepreneurial journey that you've ever received? <laughs> Make as much money as you can as quickly as possible mm. because that never works. Never works. Never works. When did you realize it doesn't work? I know you shared that experience, but yeah. there must have been some, a couple of others where you were chasing yeah. that or, or following that advice, but just didn't realize what the advice was, was potentially trying to promote. Yeah, I think, I think it's about uh, short term thinking as opposed to long term thinking. Mm. That's the thing. So if, if you're thinking about the short term and how much money you can make in the short term, then you start making decisions that are not in the best interests of your guests. Mm. And, and that's always a problem. 
And the guests ultimately are mm. telling you whether your business is working or not. Your customers, Correct. the customer is always yeah. right, as exactly. you've said. Exactly. They are the great feedback mechanism that yeah. will tell you how to run your business successfully. And if you're coming back and we've got 400,000 loyalty members now, you know, if they keep coming back, then you're obviously doing something right. Yeah, exactly. And then it does start with listening. So let me continue listening here. What is the best advice you've ever received? That one that I spoke about that, you know, that the, uh, the purpose of work is to serve. Mm. That, that, that was, that, that really changed my entire life mm. as, as far as my business career is and changed everything. My, my view on how to lead, how to manage, how to grow a business. Everything is about purpose. And there's, there's a great book for people to read. It's called Start Please With, say. yeah, it's Start called Start With Why, with why by oh, Simon, Simon Sinek. Mm. And, he talks about the importance of understanding why you're in business. And this is, you know, right up our alley. So it, it's all about, for us, it's about touching lives. The why. I want to support it with two quotes that I yes. love. One of them is from Simon as well. Yes. But the, the, the one quote, which isn't from him, is, Tell me sufficiently why I ought to do a thing, and I will move heaven and earth to do it. Yeah. That yes. phrase or that, that yes. quote has fundamentally changed my approach personally in yes. everything that I do. And then there's another one from Simon, which, which is, Your job as a leader is not to, to understand the what of the question. Yes. It's to understand why the question was asked in the first place, True. which is a really Really great quote. You've already answered the question, what book we should be yeah, reading. Okay. Maybe then just a, a, a final question from our side, which we ask everyone that comes through that door. Mm. And if you could go back in time and talk yeah. to the young 20-year-old future CEO you, yeah. what would you say to you? I think you must understand that there are three sort of basic characteristics that you need to you know, to be in business and to grow, whether you're a CEO, a budding CEO, or you're an entrepreneur. And that is that you need intuition first. You need to have some sort of intuition, mm. and you can't have a fear of failure. Mm. Okay, fear of mm. failure doesn't go down well if you're in a leadership position, because you're going to be making decisions every day of your life that's going to either work or not, and if you're afraid to fail, you're going to probably not make half of those mm. decisions. Mm. But you need intuition, which is the sense that something is right, even though you don't have the evidence to prove it. Mm. And then you need courage, because there will be times when you, you know, people are losing their heads all around you, and you've got to keep yours, and you've got to keep going. And and then finally, determination to see it through. And that it's a journey. It's never a, you know, an incident. It's a journey in life, you know, to build a business. It takes time. And you grow over that period. So if you have intuition, you, you, you're not afraid. You have courage of convictions and you have determination to see it through. And for the long haul, I think you'd be in good shape. Mr. Ian Fur, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here in studio with us, sharing your journey, sharing your insights. Mm-hmm. We've run out of time, which means we're probably going to have to have you back here (laughs) at some point. But thank you so very much for being here. And we certainly wish you all the best as you push forward. And and I'm certainly excited to see where you're going next. Well, we have five stores in London already. Oh, really? Okay, fantastic. Now we've started there. Well, we're going to be looking on with much interest. And when when the globe is yours, we'll have you back in (laughs) studio and you can share a whole new set of lessons from playing in the global playground. Thank you very much, Gareth. I have a Appreciate it and have enjoyed our chat. That is all we have time for this week on Future CEOs. We'll see you same time, same place next week. This is CliffCentral.com.